Today, you're in for a real treat. Three incredible women, all MBAs at a Canadian university, interviewed me in a podcast mic takeover. They did an incredible job with the interview, asking pertinent, punchy, and also very, very deep, real questions. The answers might surprise you, and I hope will be very informative. Whether you're a woman thinking about the career of consulting or just someone who's wondering whether a job in a fast-paced industry is for you, this interview is a must-listen. I'm so excited today to welcome to the podcast three incredible women who are taking over the mic. They're going to be interviewing me, asking me lots of great questions. And before we get started with the questions, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Welcome, ladies. Thank you so much, Jenny. Um, we're very excited to be here today. So as you mentioned, before we begin, we'll give a very brief background of who we are and why we're here today. So my name is Nikki Selinger. I have a Bachelor in Management from the University of British Columbia, Okanagan, and I'm currently pursuing my Joint Juris Doctor and Master of Business degree from the University of Alberta. Hi, my name is Savetha Cartwright. I have my undergrad in Mechanical Engineering and a Diploma in Technology Management and Entrepreneurship. I'm currently doing my MBA and am interested in the consulting field. Hi, my name is Marisa Manzacco and I have a Bachelor of Commerce from the University of Windsor. My background is in the media industry, but I'm looking to pivot into a career in management consulting upon completing my Master of Business degree at the University of Alberta. Thanks, guys. So we had the absolute pleasure of participating in some workshops with Jenny and have since been really curious to learn more about management consulting. So as we mentioned, we all come from um, a wide array of backgrounds, but management consulting is new and we're excited and eager to learn more about it and very grateful to have this opportunity to spend time with her. And the whole idea to have the Q&A over the podcast stemmed from us being really inspired by Jenny's sessions and wanting to address some questions that we as a group found ourselves to be really curious about and thought Jenny would be the perfect person to offer some insight. And we're really grateful to have this opportunity to interview and are excited to learn more about how to become an excellent management consultant. Perfect. So without any further ado, um, if it's okay, we will open the floor for some questions for you. Absolutely. I was born ready for this. <laughs> that is the spirit. <laughs> um, so many of us have received a lot of advice, tips, and tricks on how to earn a management consulting position. Um, but at times, it can be super overwhelming, and we're not exactly sure where to start. So what is one single action that you would suggest an ambitious individual take today in order to achieve long-term success for themselves? It's impossible to get a top management consulting position without going through the case interview. And so I'll just talk a little bit about what I think really constitutes success in the case interview, because it's not necessarily volume of practice, like some people suppose, or even knowledge that makes you good in the case interview. And I can give you some background on my story. So my my undergrad degree was in economics. And a lot of what I had to unlearn in the case interview process was an academic way of thinking about business. I had to become a lot more practical at breaking down problems into measurable bite-sized pieces. And so I would say that if just, you know, starting out again, if I were speaking to myself, if I were in your shoes and trying to think about it, I think that the goal is to try to understand business through a simple lens, trying to figure out very basically what the drivers of growth are and the drivers of cost are in given businesses. And that 
clarity lens gives you the ability to solve cases very effectively. Because if you know what the big driver of something is, I'll give you an example. Today, I just did a payments provider case with an organization that I was leading a session on. And we had this very broad and long conversation and there were 16 things that we could look at. And then finally, when we distilled it down, I said, what does a payments provider do? And they were like, we don't know. And so, <laughs> and so if we can figure that out, we're probably better consultants and you're probably better at the case interview. And so I said, great, well, you know, who are their customers? The customers are merchants. What do they do for them? They provide payments infrastructure. How do they make money? Um, so it's really asking some of the, the basic questions that sometimes feel disallowed when you get fancier in business and making sure that you understand fundamentally a payments processor, what they do is they acquire merchants, they process payments, and they take a single fee for every transaction, and then they take a percentage of the fees as well. What are they trying to do? Get more merchants, get more transactions, get bigger dollar transactions. Right. And it's a multi-billion dollar industry. But when we can be really simple and think through things like that, I think that's the, the starting place. And that's going to bring me to my second point around success in the case interview. Uh, the two of these go together. But I think that have it, taking a simple lens and really understanding businesses and industries, uh, while it's the most important thing, it has to be done with some flair and some interest. And one of the things that I've noticed is a common theme across candidates that are successful every year is that they, they don't feel like they ever graduate from the process of learning about business. And their innate enthusiasm drives them into a case with interest, not just with a process. And that interest can help unlock aspects and discussions inside the case that are much more dynamic rather than rote robotic structures. So you know, I think taking that simple lens, but just not making it something where you're trying to check the box like you would in academia, I think is really essential. In fact, I'll just, I, I may have thought about saying this at some other part in our conversation, but I'll just say it here. I feel like business is so simple that a child can grasp it. My, my five-year-olds and my seven-year-olds in my family can get it. You should make more than you spend. You should find something that somebody finds of value and have them pay you for it, right? These are some of the simple concepts that you can grasp as an under 10-year-old. But then it's so complex that knowing different businesses and different metrics is such an exciting place to be that I think I will never be bored. Thanks. That was a great answer. Um, I have a follow-up for you based off of that. Um, I love what you said about um, the merchant question and how you posed back to them and said, do you actually know what that is? I feel like in the past, I know for me, like I've been given an assignment before where maybe I wasn't 100% clear on what exactly was being asked. Where do you think you should approach the question from a vulnerability standpoint? Because of course, as a consultant, you're expected to have the answer. Mm -hmm. How much vulnerability should you show in asking those clarification questions? Yeah, we actually just did an internal training with our team about this recently, because what we discovered is that we were expecting levels of expertise and, and uh, commentary and even consulting or internal advising from our staff members that they were not equipped to give because we didn't equip them for it. And so uh, what we said was that we recommended that they use a concept called the pyramid principle, which is to tell me what you think the answer might be. Uh, and why you 
think it might be that, and then to ask for verification. So one of the things that can be really a distancer or a a downgrader in the way that somebody perceives you in the workplace is if you ask open-ended questions without your own perspective that you're explaining, because it might make you appear lazy or out of the know. And so the solving point for that is to say, when you say payments processor, let me just talk through what I think that means. And I realize there's probably a lot more nuance to it, but I want to see if I can capture the gist of it. And the attempt of practicing that opens up the better questions on the backside. Thank you. And I really like your emphasis on learning throughout all of this, because I think that's the main reason I'm so intrigued by by management consulting is every individual who I meet who's in the industry, that's one of the first things they say is it's constant learning and that's what they love about it. Um, And so it's really nice to just hear that reiterated time and time again. (laughs) Absolutely. In fact, the things that you learn aren't the things that you always want to learn. It might be about a chicken farm or something as sexy as, you know, chemicals that go into eyebrow coloring or things that you're you're like, how is that even an industry? And and what did it what did it happen? And and it's also challenging because the problems that you're being brought and paid handsomely to solve are brought to you and paid handsomely to solve because they weren't solvable in terms of the inside of an industry. And so there is a really exciting nature of it, just as long as people don't think that it's all solving problems for Disney and Rainbows, right? Fair. Okay, we'll move on to the second question. Yes, so I think that it's really clear for anyone who's met you or maybe watched one of your videos or listened to a podcast that you carry yourself really confidently and you present yourself as always being really self-assured. And I think that for a lot of us, that's a really admirable quality. Has this confidence always come naturally to you or has it been something that's been built over many years? It's a great question. There were some pieces of the confidence that probably were natural, and I'm a firstborn in my family, so <laughs> I had the ability to carve out time with my parents, like younger siblings sometimes don't. So, uh, in fact, I told my parents when I was three at a dinner party that I didn't want to play with the children because they were boring and wanted to have <laughs> intellectually stimulating conversation, which uh, you know just might give you a little insight into what a psychopath I am. <laughs> But, uh, but but really, I, I was interested in learning. Uh, and um, I was also, I was also I think I did a lot of it so early in my life that I did gain self assurance at a, a pretty rapid pace. So I asked my family when we had the second child, so there were four of us traveling if I could be the one seated alone on a plane, and I would sit and I would investigate what the people sitting next to me did for a living. And I would ask them, like, tell me a little bit about your career. And do you have a dog and the other questions that a five year old asks to random strangers. Um, so I, I developed this kind of, um, you know, curiosity that helped me carry myself, I think, because it wasn't just about presentation. It was about interaction. And I think that's a big element around you know, progressing in the way that we carry ourselves is understanding how to match 
uh, expectations and tone and question answers with more questions to really pursue what somebody's really looking for in a conversation or in a situation. But then there was some other training that I got. I was actually in pageants when I was in high school. This is a dark, <laughs> dark secret of mine. And uh, there were no bathing suits involved. These were, you know, very classy pageants. But um, mm-hmm. there were evening dresses and uh, piano concerts and um public speaking on our feet that was a part of that. And so I did have some places where I was able to test out pressure from an earlier age as well. And so anyhow, hopefully that gives you some insight into where some of that came from. Um, Did I capture the essence of the question or did you want to ask something about, I I don't know if I got everything around how you would grow into it. I I know that I answered the kind of where where the heck did the weirdness come from, but maybe not the rest of it. No, I definitely loved hearing the background about like your upbringing and um, the fact that you're the the eldest child. I think you've got a, a leg up there. I'm uh, fourth out of five kids, so it's a very different situation for me. Yeah. Where um, were the adults? Right? Where yeah. the adults? Yeah. I still don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Raised by wolves, you know? Yeah. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but I think that what I was really hoping to hear, if you don't mind sharing, is um, almost a bit more about the consulting point of view, because I remember hearing your your past story about how you had a, a friend or a colleague who really sat you down and went through all of those different types of cases with you. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that like now you can take pretty much any case and just break it down like that is so impressive. Um, and so how would you recommend maybe be um, kind of doing a similar type of thing, but in the age of COVID when you can't really sit down with people or maybe just in, in this generation now? You know what? The way that you asked that question made me think of something I've never thought of before. And this is so fun. Uh, one of the things that she told me from the beginning was that I could do the job. And I just realized that that probably gave me the innate confidence to unpack things in a way where I knew that I could figure it out. And I would estimate that there are probably a lot of people who have real doubt about that, whether they could actually do the job, uh, whether they could actually succeed. And I would say that maybe the first thing that needs to happen is a mindset shift or a conversation with a mentor that could encourage you and asking somebody just uh, but you have to ask, when you ask them, you have to believe them. There's that part too. But but asking somebody, do you think I could do this job? And I think that the ability for me to solve problems came from this just, I know I can get there, so I just have to solve for the gap rather than not knowing how big the gap might be. And so, um, so, so that was, that was one thing. And then practically and tactically, I opened myself up to constructive feedback, which was really painful for me. I'm much better at having people tell me I'm wonderful. And so <laughs> having having her and giving her the permission to tell me that I was really missing the mark um, with that, that, that combined with the I know I can get there, I think was a really powerful tension. And then what she did with me was that she said, I think you're reading too much. So uh, she recommended that I stop reading books on cases and watching other people go through cases and that I do more of a drill-based review of the cases that I did. So I only did 20 cases before I went through my interviews. 
Uh, but I, I knew those cases like the back of my hand. I could have done the math in my sleep. I redid them multiple times. And wringing the learnings out of single cases might, might counterintuitively uh, lead you to be able to solve more cases versus solving more cases up front. Right. And so I think that deeper approach helped me quickly. I only had two weeks, so helped me quickly unpack what I needed to do to then solve. And in my cases, I had like a shoe retailer and, you know, all these things that I'd never seen before. But I, I did have a process that was consistent and I did know that I could solve it. And starting with those two things, I think. We'll be right back after this quick message. In the last six years, Management Consultant has become the premier provider of university support services in the consulting and case interview space with a wide range of offerings, including webinars, private boot camps, and digital training materials. We can help your students affordably get prepared for very competitive consulting and corporate strategy roles. Reach out to us at managementconsultant.com. That's great. I really love that positive mindset. I think that's really important. Um, but, you know, moving on to the next question, um, we often hear that consulting is a very intense industry that takes up a lot of people's personal lives and that maybe the work-life balance is uh, not very favorable. So what advice would you offer to someone who's a bit apprehensive of that level of intensity that's often associated with management consulting? I love this question. And you know what's so interesting to me? It's almost always women that ask this question of me. And I think that that demonstrates two things. First of all, the message has not been tailored to the message that women need to hear, which is a different message than you can handle the work-life balance. It's actually a very specific message around, here's how we're gonna support you to manage your work and your life together. And I'll, I'll talk about that because I, I wanna explain what powerful, uh, comprehensive structures and programs are in place to support women in particular inside the consulting industry that I was so impressed by. In fact, I think that it is one of the most remarkable places for women to live, work, and have good work-life balance. Uh, so I'll talk about why that is. But I think the second piece that's also really important to note is that uh, I think that sometimes women have questions that are different questions that that question is masking. And I'll explain that. I think it has to do with whether or not we think that we can do things well in the work and the life category. It's a, a more fundamental question rather than is consulting a good place for work and life? Is it is work and life balance possible? And um, so I'm going to answer the second one first, and then I'm going to go back to the first one. So yes, work and life balance is possible if you recognize one essential truth, which is that every day, every week, every month, and every year will not look or feel the same. Every moment of every day is not going to be balanced. And you are going to have a week when you are missing everything in the life that you've built. And you're going to have other weeks when you get everything back, right? And there is a natural ebb and flow to it where if you evaluate it on a one day or a one week basis, no way that you have work-life balance, not even possible to do. Um, but if you evaluate on the macro, then you're able to do that. And I find that a lot of men and families do that much more effectively. Their evaluation metric is more honest and longer in scope. 
right? Am I a good father is not, was I a good father this morning? It's, am I a good father over the course of this year? Um, and they're, they're more honestly in a bigger picture, evaluating whether or not those tiny calibrations that they're making are getting them closer to a place that they're satisfied with. So to answer your first question that you didn't ask me, it's, it's possible to balance work and life. Women, it's possible to balance work and life. Um, the, and, and it's possible to do that not by starting out perfectly or ending perfectly, but by having honest, frequent, but not too frequent evaluations of what matters in the long run. The second way that it's possible to have work and life balance is to crush it. Uh, the more favorable you are as an employee, the more license you have. And I also watched women take less of that license in workplaces that I've been in where they didn't recognize that they had built up trust and honor and value inside their organizations. And therefore, they didn't capitalize on it by saying, I'm going to work from home one extra day a week. Or I would, you know, I, I this is important to me going forward. And I know you want to keep me for 20 years, I'm going to add a lot of value to your organization. And, and just some of that, like self actualization, bringing that to the party, I think, um, I think was missing. Uh, to what consulting firms do and do consulting firms have work life balance? The answer is also yes. This the answer, however, is is the same. On a given Tuesday in March, you could be working 18 hours or you could be working six. And if you look at that given Tuesday, you will feel like either you have work-life balance or you don't. But in the course of massive projects, I actually think it's quite an, imp an impressive place because on week one of the project, you can golf, you can go out to lunch, you're diving into data, but you're doing it alone. There's no meetings, there's no deadlines, there's there's catch up time kind of built in to the ebb and flow of projects. And then the week before a project, if you try to go to Maui for the weekend before, you're going to be miserable because you're going to work on the plane and you're going to work in Maui and you're going to work on the way back and you're not going to see the beach or the whales or anything amazing. And you're going to be mad at the world because of all of that nonsense. And so, you know, again, if you look at only that week, you will feel like you never have work-life balance. But I actually felt like consulting was a four-day-a-week job. It was Monday through Thursday with a little bit of a... Um, kind of, you know, precursor work on Sunday night. It was really barely Friday and definitely almost never Saturday. Um, and then it was those weeks that were crazy that characterize everything and the other weeks that really aren't that bad. In addition, uh, if you focus on skill development, which I did at a level B, and I think I told you guys in one of our sessions that I was not a top performer for a lot of different reasons in my first section, mostly because I withheld myself from the workplace. Um, but if you, if you hold yourself back, um, then you will go slower up the learning curve and you will also be slower in your work. So it took me a full year to cut my work process down in half, delivering a greater amount of output. And for some people, they get there never. And for some people, they get there much faster than I did. So my exhortation to you would be go into these industries that make you invaluable for the rest of your life. Grab every single skill you can, like you're shopping for toilet paper during COVID, like just run your hand <laughs> along the shelf and put them all in your cart. <laughs> like just learn all the things and take all the professional development and act like you're hungry and starving and will never eat again. Like do that in your first one to two years when you're in one of these roles and in one of these jobs and then take all of what you gain 
and doing that afterwards and decide what you want. Maybe it will be consulting because you will have figured out how to balance everything. Maybe it will be something else and you will have all the tools and skills to get paid twice what you would make in consulting for half the work. So any one of those scenarios ends up being really good for you. And I would encourage anybody not to not go into a field that's as demanding like this or even this field specifically because of what their concerns are about work-life balance. That was a very insightful response. Um, and, and you've already touched on this, but I wanted to expand on it a bit further. So when you when a person joins consulting, they've never done any consulting in the past, how long do you recommend and how often do you recommend we reflect on our performance and where we're at and when should we make, I guess, that go, no-go decision? Yeah. So, uh, you know, at Bain, they did a really good job of telling us a lot that we were terrible. <laughs> they told us at the end of every project. They told us at the six-month mark and the 12-month mark. And it was like, oh, out of, you know, 97 points, you got three. Congratulations, right? You know, they they really helped us um, construct that reflection. So maybe you don't need to do more than that. I don't think I needed to do any more than that, personally. I would say that at a minimum on a biannual basis, so once every or semi-annual, which one is it? Anyhow, every half a year, every six months is a good time to check in on, you know, am I still growing? What have I grown in? Where do I still need to grow? Um, and having that upward conversation with somebody if it isn't already structured in can be really great, right? Why not? You know, where, where are the gaps that I personally have? How can I crush it in the next six months? And what does that look like? Uh, but I would give yourself two years to gain enough proficiency to know whether it's a go, no go at the proficient level, because you could leave too early just because you're not good at it yet. And then Mm -hmm. once you're good at it, you're going to have a different reflection on whether you want to do it or not. So for example, I could have left Bain much earlier because I was like, I don't want to do spreadsheets. Okay. Fundamentally, why I left was not because I didn't want to do spreadsheets. I was fine at spreadsheets. I was proficient at spreadsheets. Spreadsheets were no longer hard when I was leaving. What was hard was thinking about a life in a future where I was selling consulting work. That for me ended up being something that I decided I didn't want to do. I wanted to build products or services that were different, differentiated. Uh, And I felt like even though I could see value and honor the work that the partners did, I just couldn't see my life following that trajectory. And, um, And so I think you have to be able to ask the right questions before you are asking that go, no go decision. I love that discussion. And it's unfortunate we don't have five hours to talk because I feel like there's so many follow-up questions, but I will move on. (laughs) Um, And you have alluded to this next one um, a little bit here, but it's evidently very challenging to earn a position at one of the top three consulting firms or any consulting firm for that matter. Um, And so what skill and I'm going to specify it a little bit more aside from case case study Mm -hmm. preparation, what skill would you say is most valuable to have when applying? You need to have done a consulting-like project. In fact, just yesterday, we had a conversation with a partner from a strategy consulting firm that's not one of the top three, but certainly competes with them. And, And he said the only thing that they look for in parallel hires is your consulting like work. So they're looking for you to have proved in your own life that you can do and do like the work that you're expected to do, which means you need to have the explanation that you've done work in Excel. You need to have the explanation that you've solved a business problem for an organization. And they're looking for that in the fit interview, but they're looking to see if 
you can verify that you're capable of doing it through the case interview as well. But uh, one of the things, so just as an example, we have two programs that we run through Management Consulted. One is Black Belt that's focused on casing. And Nikki, the second one is focused, uh, it's called Strategy Sprint. And it's focused on doing an actual project for an actual client. And what our clients that have done both have said is that they find that there's a lot of overlap, right? The better casers are the ones that are better in the projects. And the ones that are better in the projects are better from casing. And, um, and so I think that that actual skills-based experience, I can solve a problem by building a spreadsheet and finding the right data to answer the question that's being asked. That actual applied process is really valuable to organizations. And the more that you've done it, they, if you've done it once, like strategy sprint for many people has got them the new job. They, 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 the firms only needed to know that they did it one time. But if you've done it repetitively or in, internally inside an organization, or you've worked in a kind of internal consulting capacity professionally, that can also be really attractive. Okay, that's great. And then to um, ladder onto that, I'm curious what an interpersonal skill would be that you would think is really important, um, whether that's listening or work ethic or whatnot? Follow-up questions. It's tactical and interpersonal at the same time. But just the the follow-up question you just asked is an amazing example of it. Uh, There are a lot of people who operate at quite a distance. And so follow-up questions draw you closer. They draw you in. And so someone's ability to ask a clarifying question or a follow-up question or let's say you ask me a question about my story and we're in an interview and you say, why have you stayed here? What has been so compelling about the firm that has made you turn down every other offer that I'm sure has come in the door, right? And and then I, I, I answer that. And then instead of being like, I have another question. Right? You're just like, you know, just the follow up moment, I think, is so essential. And the the way that you get great solutions for clients is by asking for clients is by asking great questions. Um, so, yeah, if, if I could encourage people, in fact, we do manager training at the cor- at the corporate level, at the Fortune 500 level. And one of the things that we teach new presenters is how to when someone asks them a question in a meeting, how to ask a follow up question to the question before they answer it. It's one of the core skills that they don't have that they need in order to gain the authority and the, and the perception that they need to answer their question effectively. Wonderful. Well, we have lots of follow up, but again, I'll pass it on to the next okay. person. <laughs> Thank um, you. So I had a question about failures in general. Um, so all of us have failed at one point or another. Um, and at work, you can go in a little bit of a lull where nothing's working. You're not winning contracts. Your recommendations aren't being approved. How do you ma- what internal dialogue do you maintain through such challenging times to keep you going and making sure that every time you get back on the horse and give it your 100% rather than get defeated. Yeah, this question out of all the ones that you sent me was hardest for me to answer because again, I've never thought about it. I think I've done it maybe in some healthy and some unhealthy ways, in fact. And so it it caused me to really reflect on what what that looks like. I think that for me, the only thing that has successfully helped me navigate is thinking about what I can learn from the defeat and categorizing it in one or two ways. Right? Situational, i.e. I didn't have control over the defeat. 
sometimes if you're selling a sales contract and it quite honestly had nothing to do with how well you connected and how you know thorough your response was and maybe you even had the better idea, but somebody just had a COVID situation and their budget got cut. Like, you know, it's really not your fault. Uh, there's internal politics that led them to in no way be able to do what you asked, proposed, or needed them to do. Uh, that, that's that's one category. And so knowing when it's okay to say there really wasn't a chance that that thing, that opportunity was going to work out, uh, then separating out the ones where it is your fault. And then I think being able to clearly understand which is which is one of the first things. So not immediately assuming it's not your fault and not immediately assuming it's your fault is really helpful. And then once you figure out whose fault it is, then you know what to do, right? In one situation, for example, the learning from this person had no ability to do what we needed them to do would be who right now has the ability to do what I need them to do, right? Is it somebody else in that organization, somebody else in a different organization? Like, what am I looking for that's different than what I found in the first place? And if it's you, it's, okay, I oversold that. I, I tried three times and I should have just let them tell me the first time that they weren't interested you know, it's really taking the feedback of the process and recognizing how incrementally you need to grow. But either way, you're basically pivoting by redoing what your process is or by moving to an adjacency. And I think that's one of the reasons that we've been able to grow. Uh, one of the things that we did at the beginning of COVID, because we had no idea what was going to happen to our business or anyone else's, is we just opened up a listening call. And we said, we'll be on Zoom at this time. If you want to come and talk, come and talk. We had no plan, no prescription, but it was a learning opportunity for us. And we just said, what are the questions that you have? What are you worried about? You know, tell us what you're thinking. And then people just kind of started chatting. And and it came for us with ideas about building new ways of doing things that we never had before. And it's it's been for our business an accelerant, actually. So anyhow, that, that position of learning is probably the most important part of it. But then not just assuming that you're always wrong is, I think, probably the more important piece. Yeah, I think that's really powerful, especially, I guess, reflecting back on my internal dialogue. It, I default to, I did it all wrong. Everything's messed up. It was my fault. But talking about differentiating between the situation versus something that you can learn yourself, mm -hmm. I think is really important. And perhaps more often than not, it's likely situational. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I have uh, someone on my team who does this better than I do. So I've learned from him. There are times when I'm like, what could we have done differently? And he's like, honestly, nothing. And I'm like, that's not possible. And then, uh, and, and he says, no, no, really. I, I really think that we just need to move on to, you know, and everything is a percentages game kind of at the end of the day. And, and I'm like, what are you talking about? Right. I want to win everything. And, uh, <laughs> and so, so Veda, I think that that skill is something that I've, uh, I've learned by watching people that are better, calmer and more um, proficient at it than I am. Yeah, for sure. Especially the calmer part. I identify with that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back after this quick break. Are you getting the most out of your team? If you don't feel like you are, check out Management Consultants' corporate training offerings. With bespoke training on the pyramid principle, virtual presentations, and much more, we'll help you take your team to the next level. If they need to perform better, faster, and be more clear in their focus, check out a Management Consultant corporate training offering. 
Click the link in the show notes to learn more and schedule a one-on-one chat to see how we can help take your team to the next level. Okay, so another question I have is management consulting in the world has an image of being business-centered and profit-driven. But reflecting back on what you had said originally as well, what your story was, you really didn't want to get into consulting, probably for the same reason. But you've had a successful career in it and you're still in it. Um, How does consulting, looking from the inside now rather than the outside, how does uh, consulting address, I guess, the social responsibility and ethics, as well as aligning your own values with this field? Yeah. One of the things that I could not wrap my mind around with business initially because I wanted to think of it in a box that was simpler for me to process was I I basically had this framework, profit is evil and everyone else that doesn't pursue profit is amazing. You know, um, it was like profit was this um, unpurifier of of people, businesses and everything else. And I've, I've come to have a more nuanced understanding of profit in the first place. So you only make a profit in a business if you succeed at solving a problem for an organization. In fact, that's one of the reasons I fell in love with business in the first place is that as I was traveling, I noticed that businesses better than governments and better than nonprofits actually solved problems for people. Um, and I was I was powerfully impressed by what that looks like. Uh, One of the challenges with that comes the fact that strategically, you're going to invest $3 in the U.S. versus any dollar anywhere else in the world because of the value, right? And so what does that mean? You get differential gain in the U.S. and North America um, in general versus the rest of the world because there's continued investment, continued willingness to pay, continued advancement. And uh, and then you find this accelerating factor of like there's more business services developed by more people in more places. And there's this bigger ecosystem and it just gets like to be this giant kind of all-encompassing thing. And so I think that corporate social responsibility comes from uh, not saying we're only going to do one, we're only going to focus on the biggest segment, we're only going to focus on the biggest profit earners, but we can make money in different places. And so we are going to focus on the things that drive the most profit in our business, because that means that we're solving the biggest problems for the most people. Good. Right. Um, But it also means that we're allocating not necessarily through corporate social responsibility, which usually implies that we're giving money away, but through, um, you know, thoughtful development, through thoughtful, um, through through work that doesn't have an immediate effect um, where we are making sure that we're reallocating resources, problem solving, the gifts of the organization and the products and services to places that otherwise would be neglected. If we said instead of there are three segments and they're tiered one, two, three, we said there are three segments and we're tiered one, right? Corporate social responsibility says we're going to put 80% toward one, 10% towards two, and 10% towards three. And I think that's where the power of it comes in is where you don't just build a pipeline for giving, but a pipeline for continued development of the business by allocating this kind of innovation fund to figuring out how to solve problems. That's actually really insightful. I think that's a key fact that's missing from um, general public's knowledge, that it's about solving problems and providing innovative solutions. And what you said really resonates with me, where you said it's 
if you're getting profits, it's actually solving a real problem, which affects the greatest number of people. There are, you know, we were, I was just having a conversation this week about when you buy in gaming, like in a game like Fortnite, when you buy a skin, you know, how much it costs. And like, there are probably exceptions to my rule. You know, I'm not really sure that that, that solves, a, a, you know, let's call it a need, but certainly a want. And both could be considered problems. So that that has driven me, Savita, uh, to remain so interested in the different kinds of businesses and different places in new businesses and old businesses in trying to figure out what makes businesses go away. You know, it's it's not usually because they mismanage them. It's because the need of what they offered is disappearing. The, the business as it was structured no longer solves the need. And so businesses that successfully pivot over generations pivot to needs, not to products. Well, um, I think that concludes all the questions that we have on our end. I think I can say on behalf of all three of us how fun this has been and how much we've all learned from it. Thank you so much again for all of your time and all of your insights to our questions. Thank you. It was really an honor. And I hope that something that I said today will encourage, uh, inspire, or challenge you because I think I've had uh, the opportunity to be encouraged, inspired, and challenged by a lot of people in my life. So it's a great opportunity for me to get to share this information with y'all. Thanks again for asking me. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jenny. That was very insightful. Usually at the end of our podcasts, we let you know about things that we offer, like corporate training or consulting or advising for your interviews. But today we just have one question that we want to ask. Do you have something that you would like to hear from us? If so, come join us as a podcast mic takeover guest. You can ask great questions that I'm sure lots of other people are asking as well and have the opportunity to get your voice heard on the podcast. We would love to host you and you can reach out to us for more information at team at managementconsulted.com. In addition, if you liked this podcast, won't you share it, like it, or leave us a great review. Thanks for joining and we hope to have you on a future episode of Strategy Simplified.